Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We've been going for a couple of years now, but for listeners who might be unfamiliar with all this, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist, architect, or in this case, scientist, about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, I'm hugely delighted to be joined by Mark Miodovnik. Mark is a UCL professor of materials and society. He received his PhD in turbine jet engine alloys from Oxford University and has worked as a materials engineer in the USA, Ireland and the UK. For more than 20 years, he has championed material science research that links the arts and humanities, medicine and society. This culminated in the establishment of the UCL Institute of Making, where he is a director and runs the research programme. He's the author of two highly successful and I think importantly incredibly accessible books on materials, Stuff Matters and Liquid, and regularly presents TV and radio programmes about material science on the BBC. Most recently, he's co-chaired a working group that has just delivered a fascinating and far-reaching report on animate materials for the Royal Society, which will be the focus of much of our chat. According to the designer, Thomas Heatherwick, Mark has a gift for exciting us with his unique combination of the science and his sensuality, the stuff that the world is made from. Mark, are you there? Hello. Yes. Nice to be here. Thank you. (laughs) That's a pleasure. Um, thanks very much for doing this. Was that all reasonably accurate? I think I did lift some of it from your website. No, that's, that's, you know, I mean, biogs are such odd things, aren't they? Sort of summarising your life. I think you missed out that I'm just a sort of enthusiast about materials. I've always loved them and feel very lucky to be able to be in a research institution where I get to make them and study them and (laughs) collect them, all sorts of things. Generally hang out with them. Yes. But you're not there today. Where are you at the moment? I'm at home because of the pandemic. And yes, our Institute of Making is closed at the moment because of yeah, COVID safety measures. Right. And um, is there a plan for reopening? Uh, yeah, we should be. I mean, it's, it's actually all government mandated. The university will slowly reopen to our students, I think, on the 17th of May, all being well. And then it'll ramp up towards the middle and end of the year to where we're hopefully fully open again. Right. So have you been closed all year? Have you coped with the last 12 months or so? Personally, I don't think I've coped brilliantly. but <laughs> I'm not so good, it turns out, cooped up inside. But in terms of the Institute of Making, what we've done is shifted to online interfacing with people and materials. And we've done lots of technical consultations online, which which actually is a sort of really interesting thing where people have been making stuff at home and we've been helping them make them or making stuff in their own workshops and we've been advising them. And we've been carrying on doing our research on things like plastic waste and right. uh, animate materials, which we're going to talk about today. Well, we are. It must be a very different experience trying to do this you know, online, something that you usually, I'm guessing, is with your hands. Yeah. You know, the whole business about social distancing and having to self-isolate is anti-material in some ways, isn't it? Yes, it is. Right. It kind of the materials are the enemy kind of thing, um, <laughs> and you mustn't touch them. And if you do, you must wash your hands. I mean, that is the antithesis of our approach, which is that you know the sensual and sensuality qualities of materials are just as important as their structural and electronic and magnetic properties. And that mm. you know, great designers understand that. And the role of material science, which is the problem that I deal with, is to understand that. When you design a new material or you're trying to understand a material, you need to understand it from all of these different dimensions. You can't just talk about the physical properties. You you need to understand how humans interact with them and what they feel like, what they smell like, what they taste like, and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll maybe get on to a bit more of that later, but I'm keen to talk about this 
report that you've co-written about animate materials for the Royal Society. It's part of a series on emerging technologies that the Society has commissioned. Just out of interest, what else are they looking at? The Royal Society is um, the oldest scientific institution in the world. And so it's a sort of club for scientists that was started way back, you know, in Newton's time. I guess it prides itself on being at the cutting edge of all the sciences. And so what it does, it tries to identify the new horizons or the new interfaces where science is growing or pushing forward and write reports on those and comment on them and sort of, in a sense, point people in the direction of exciting possible new discoveries. And so Animate Materials was identified by the Royal Society as one of these. And so at that point, they get in outside experts, and I was one of them, to help them shape the report and do the research. And so that was my role. Okay. And how are you defining Animate Materials for the purposes of the report, Mark? There are three categories, I believe, active, adaptive, and autonomous. Can you maybe define those for us? Yeah. So I guess it's probably worth sort of just giving a bit of the history of materials because essentially essentially that's how we ended up <laughs> where we are with this so we're used to thinking about materials and indeed the history of materials is about discovery of how they work and their properties uh, or discovery of how to make them that maps onto the history of civilization so you get the stone age and you get the mm, the mm. copper age and the bronze age and the iron age and so on as we make it through to the modern times, the number of materials that we have invented and used just has exponentially got larger. So plastics and you know textiles and electronic materials and magnetic materials and all those sorts of things. But by and large, almost all of those materials are, are what we would describe as passive. So they do something. You make them, they do it, they get damaged, they fall apart, you replace them. And what animate materials is saying, well, the th- our thesis is that There's actually a few materials now that are on the market that do more than that. They look after themselves. They heal themselves. There are paints that heal themselves, aren't there? Yeah. There are paints Mm. that heal themselves. If they get scratched, they'll heal themselves. There's concrete that does that too. Mm. You know, and these are little pockets of technology. And what we said is, so in fact, are are we going into a new era of materials? The stuff that we make stuff out of, is this paradigm changing? Are we now going to be making stuff that is more lifelike, more animate? So has some of the qualities of living matter. And in trying to kind of shape that discussion, we decided there were sort of three areas where we think there's going to be growth in the kind of properties, and that is active, adaptive, and... Autonomous. Exactly. And so autonomous (laughs) is about being able to compute. Can you act and make decisions? And, you know, we see this in the world. If you think about a tree... It decides when it blooms. It decides when it deploys a leaf. It decides when it's going to harvest energy from the sun. Will that be a kind of characteristic of matter of the future? Will bits of matter decide, a roof, for instance, decide to be one colour because it's sunny and therefore it can Mm. reflect heat? Or will it decide to be dark because it wants to absorb heat and therefore heat up the interior? So that's the autonomous side of it. And of course, in order to make the switch, you have to have another characteristic, which is not just to be able to compute but you need to be able to do it. You need to be able to adapt. And then you also need to be able to be active. You need to be able to understand and sense the world. So there's sort of three characteristics we think are important. The sort of sensing of the world, whether it be light or energy or heat or stress or that they're cracked. There's the ability to do something about it. Mm. (laughs) Uh, So to heal themselves, change colour, change shape and so on. And then there's the decision-making process itself 
which is the autonomous nature of it. And so we think that the 21st century is going to be a growth of animate materials and that as we go forward in time, more and more materials will have those three characteristics. Right. And do these materials, these three categories, do they sit in a hierarchy, Mark? We don't think so. In fact, we sort of map them out in the report more like a sort of dimensions uh, of, of material properties. If you can think of a cube, it's a pretty basic way of thinking about things. But imagine active, adaptive, and autonomous are three axes of a cube. And if you're in the bottom corner of that cube, you've got zero of all of those things. You're basically not active, not adaptive, and not autonomous. You're a material that's like stone or metal or Mm. (laughs) plastic. And that's not to say they are not wonderful materials, but they don't have any of those capabilities. And as you move down one of the axes, you kind of run along those lines. And if you were to plot living materials like trees and plants, well, they would be quite high on all three axes. So they'd be in the top right-hand corner. And of course, living matter like ourselves, our tissues, our brains, they have even more of those characteristics. And there's a whole set of materials, which we also put on this map, which are coming from a totally different angle. So we've approached this as material scientists and architects, designers, and so on, looking at materials from which you build things. But there's another category of matter that's already on the planet, i.e. cells, Mm. uh, that builds itself and have these characteristics. And many scientists are taking them forward in something called synthetic biology. So they're essentially, well, there's, there's many different ways of doing it, but they're sort of taking out the DNA of cells and replacing it with a, a simpler instruction set so they can build stuff with cells. And that matter, or that approach, we also put onto this map because it's interesting to think about the fact that the cell is sort of the Lego of the living world. Everything is built from cells. And that isn't how humans build stuff. We build things from continuous bits of material and components. And so there's a sort of philosophical (laughs) debate within the report as to which approach might take us more into the future. Yes. Do you have a sense which approach might take us more into the future? Well, I don't really. I feel like on the one hand, it's a pretty cool idea to use a Lego block like a cell to build stuff because it already can self-replicate, for instance. (laughs) And so it has a lot of autonomy and it can sense things. On the other hand, by trying to strip out all the information and make it do what you want it to do, that actually might turn out to be much harder than we think it is and, and maybe a dead end, actually. This comes back to what you think materials do for us and why we are so obsessed with making materials because humans do, you know, at the last count, sort of 100,000 or maybe even 150,000 materials that humans make. That's a lot of stuff. And why do we do it? Well, we kind of have, my thesis is that that's an expression of who we are and what we want to be and where we want to go and maybe cells don't actually have the capabilities to reflect those aspects of humans. Whereas, and I'll give you an example, space exploration. Actually, metals and ceramics, they tend to be much better suited to space exploration than soft cells. Mm. I know that cells can make bone and so on. Anyway, so it could be that the future is better suited to us actually making our own materials. And therefore, the animate material approach that we talk about how to design these materials and what ones are out there, which is what the report focuses on, is maybe we'll win out. But I like the idea that, you know, the next 10, 20 years, we'll, we'll, we'll just know more and more about this topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were talking about things that are already on the market. We talked about self-healing paint and self-healing concrete. It'd be quite interesting to give people an example. As you point out, as the report points out, lime water has had self-healing qualities for hundreds of years. So how would self-healing concrete work well so lime mortar for those who are not familiar with it is a very ancient material and actually is thousands of years old was used by the egyptians and and other civilizations to build 
many of their sort of incredible structures are still around today and has and maintained itself across centuries. The thing about lime mortar is that when it gets cracked, so if you build a building out of using lime mortar to bond together, say, stones or bricks, if it gets cracked by subsidence or an earthquake or something like that or other things, the lime mortar, when it's rehydrated through damp air, will actually recrystallize and start to heal that crack. And there's many examples of this happening. It shifts around, basically, within the material. And so it can redirect the stresses and reinforce certain parts of the building. So you get this dynamic self-healing. So lime mortar does that. Of course, big cracks are harder to heal and, and sometimes impossible to heal. But small cracks, little ones, which you see all the time in the built environment, are being healed in lime mortar. Mm. And that gives them a robustness. Self-healing concrete works in a different way. Some people lament this, the use of Portland cement in brick buildings, because it doesn't. it is much more rigid and is less forgiving under stress when it's cracked. But what the designers of self-healing concrete have done is they put a bacteria in there, actually a form of archaea that can really handle the high alkaline conditions. And it stays dormant inside the material for up to 50 years. It's evolved to do that in things like hot springs. So it's an amazing, it's an amazing cellular structure. When the building cracks or a bridge cracks or a tunnel cracks made of this stuff, the bacteria are exposed to, to humid air and they wake up. And they start to look around for food and the concrete manufacturers deposit little packets of food. <laughs> it sounds hilarious, but they do inside the concrete. And so these, these bacteria find the food, eat it, and then they procreate or they, they basically divide and they exponentially increase in number eating. And they poo calcite and calcite is one of the major constituents of concrete. And so they essentially eat their way out of the crack, leaving pristine material behind them. And that's a really remarkable... <laughs> Uh, symbiosis of both an organism and a structural component. And they can give the structure 90% back of the strength. So that stuff is on the market. Yeah. And it's the only thing holding us back from using it more widely is the cost. And as you know, probably the reason that concrete is used so widely is because it's the cheapest and most effective building material in pretty much many cases. So you'd think, well, it's a no-brainer. Let's use the self-healing variety. But actually, it hasn't been deployed that often, which is a shame in my book. Because of money? Yeah. And is that process infinitely repeatable, Mark? Well, no. I think that's the other thing we um, observed in the report, which is that it's a hybrid material. It's, it's part living and part passive dormant material. And uh, once that crack has opened up, and that has been healed by those bacteria, it's not clear if another crack was to form in the same place whether it would be as effective. Certainly the food would have been depleted. So what, what mm. are you going to do about that? And I guess that's the question that kind of made us think, well, look, if we're not satisfied with that, and I think we would say that's just a sort of baby step towards where we think we should be going with the built environment materials, then how would you do it better than that? <laughs> and our point in the report is that actually probably you want to redesign concrete in the first place to do all sorts of things that it currently doesn't do, one of which is self-healing, but another is sensing, uh, being able to sense its stress state and communicate that. And so you might want to start right from the beginning in formulations of uh, structural concrete rather than just trying to add things to it like they have, in this case, add bacteria to it. Mm. So it's a physics and chemistry problem. And I, I'm really a big believer in this. I think that what a really good paradigm for science to help in materials research and development is to prototype things that don't quite work, that are kind of glimpses of the future, and say, look, here it is. Isn't it amazing? It kind of works. Isn't this where we want to go? And then if that is a successful prototype, you then think, actually, the next step is not just to kind of make that prototype better. The next step is often to step backwards and go, mm. okay. So now we know where we want to go. Let's actually do a bit more basic research to try and work out if there's a better way to get there. 
And that's what we've tried to do at the Institute of Making quite a lot in our research. And I really like it as a paradigm. And I don't think there's enough of it going on, frankly. I think that, especially in the sciences, there's a huge number of people going down roads, directions of travel that were set 50 years ago as as destinations that the world no longer (laughs) needs them to go down, but they're still plodding, that's a a derogative word, (laughs) down that road. And I just think there should be more creative approaches, sort of partnering with designers, architects, and prototyping really avant-garde structures and materials without having to worry about, actually, I'm going to build a building that needs to be insured and people are actually going to live in it. And I think there's just not enough space and there's not enough out there going on in that with that kind of approach. Yeah, I mean, what other areas do you envisage animate materials being used in first? Health would seem an obvious place. I think health is probably the area where animate materials are most advanced already and they will be propelled forward by the market much more effectively. And the reason I say that is that who needs animal materials in the body? Well, those people who are suffering mobility problems or want to have a replacement organ, and that is by and large much more predominantly in the older population. So as everyone gets older, we have all sorts of mobility problems and bits of us fail. (laughs) And we want essentially, I think, to replace those bits and be able to play tennis and ski when you're 100 years old. I don't think that's impossible. I think that's totally doable in the 21st century. And we're on the way to get there. And animal materials are already playing a big part in that. There's many, many implants into the body that are tuned to the body's cell types. And when they're put into the body, so bioglass is an example. If you're in a car crash now, or you, or you have surgery now, you almost certainly will have reconstructive surgery that involves bioglass, rebuilds your bones with your own cell types. So cells that deposit on it, um, eat it and turn it into your bone. It's an yeah. amazing material. And I think that's already in use. Which is quite a sea change as well, because generally when you think about surgery, you think about putting inert materials into people's bodies. Yeah, I agree. I think the classic is the hip implant. is sort of a million of those every year. They've done a brilliant job. I mean, if you broke your hip in the past, <laughs> you were really done for in, in terms of mobility. Now, you know, it's, it's routine surgery, but it was at first um, done essentially with inert materials, titanium alloys or ceramics, stainless steels. And I think we're going to move away from those materials because they're not tuned to your body's stiffness, right? Because they're a different material, although inert, they're not the same stiffness as your other bones and they're not molding themselves to your body as all your other bones your other bones are constantly rebuilding themselves and and, and molding themselves to your your frame to what you need from them Mm. and i think that's where we're going to go with implants i mean if you think about cartilage and knees ankles all these sorts of things need a constant renewal material Uh, they need to be harnessing your body's mechanisms of rebuilding tissue and that's a dynamic process, not a static process. It's going to play havoc with our pension schemes if we're playing tennis at 100 years old, right? Yeah, that's true. Good point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a price that I'm willing to pay. I, okay. I'll, be, I'll be poor, but, you know, fit and healthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't actually have a pension scheme, so I'm buggered either way. Ah. One of the things you talk about in the report is the use of biosensors and how that could change treatment of things like cancer. Can we talk a little bit about how that would work or how they work? So at the moment, you know, you have these largely quite blunt tools for handling cancer, which are surgery, just cut it out, radiotherapy, which is blast it and blast everything around it, and then chemotherapy, which sort of chemically blasts it and anything near it. And this, that's a bit of a generalisation. There, there are more focused therapy, focused beams and, and other things, but wouldn't it be better if you could identify the cancer cells, be able to implant into the body or inject 
a set of nanoparticles that know how to find them, that are tuned towards them or have receptors that allow them to get there and attach to the cancer cells and then destroy them when they get there. And if you think about what that is, it's this business about autonomous, active and adaptive characteristics of these nanoparticles. You know, they have to know when they've got there, make the decision that they've got there, they can mm. destroy this cell and that they, you know, they deploy some action for doing that. And so I think those kind of therapies, which are well on the way, by the way, will come more and more in our direction. When you say well on the way, do you have a sense of what kind of timeline we'd be looking at? Well, people are already producing them in labs. And if you think about the mRNA vaccines that are out there now, this technology has just been deployed as vaccine with very similar kind of, you know, you're injecting into the body sort of nanoparticles, you're making them at scale. It's jumped through all of the regulatory hurdles and is saving lives now. So I think it's not as if we're looking at a situation where this has happened in labs and it's a nice thought. It's, you know, <laughs> you're, see you're seeing deployment of these things at scale across the globe now. And I think it's going to give people confidence. So I'm very optimistic that that stuff is going to be successful. Yeah, yeah. I was also intrigued by this notion of active bandages, which change colour and potentially could release antibiotics when it detects infection. Yeah, I mean, bandages, they've been around for a long... I mean, as a problem, as material science problem, they have been around for a long time. Like, the bandage needing to protect you from outside infection and stop blood flow, but then be porous and allow your body to get oxygen and to be permeable to um, water vapour so it doesn't get too sodden, and, and then to help create an environment that the body can heal itself and deploy antibiotics or antiviral agents. You know, again, you know, the, <laughs> these technologies, their time has come, <laughs> and yeah. uh, there's quite a lot of patents out there for these things. I think that we'll see a big stride forward in these. If your materials are active, I'm presuming you need a, a power source. Where would that come from? Yeah, I mean, that, that is exactly one of the issues, which makes some applications harder than others. So in the case of the built environment, for instance, the power source can be heat, so it can just be the temperature increases, or the power source can be light, or it can be electromagnetic waves of other sorts. There's lots of energy to harness, and it's sort of flowing around us in the environment all the time, but it's very diffuse. I think that's the kind of approach that will be taken there. The harder bit is if a material is going to heal itself, where does it get stuff to heal mm. itself from? At the moment, the technologies out there that are doing this store the material, the extra material, inside the material to start with, and that will get depleted once it's done its job. So little capsules are put in inside roads and inside concrete structures at the moment. So that's already happening, but it, it seems like not a fantastic way to do it. Now, what, what, a better way to do it, or would I suppose do it like living organisms do it, which is to grab the matter from the air that's surrounding it and you know carbon dioxide's there, so they grab carbon dioxide and they use it to build their build structures, carbohydrates and so on. So that that's pretty smart, isn't it? If you're made of other stuff that isn't just carbon molecules, then where are you going to get that stuff from? The other way to do it, and there are some people trying this, is to have a vascular system inside a structural material in the same way that we have veins, right, which mm. flow around us and they deliver us nutrients. And so some people are trying this with composites for aerospace, where the composites themselves, when they're made, have a vascular structure inside them which flows nutrients and therefore can deliver stuff to a site that's damaged and they can take away damaged material. And that's the way our bodies work, and that clearly is effective so so i think yeah there's, there's ways forward in all these directions yeah yeah but if you're applying that to a city that means building a whole new system i guess yeah 
we didn't shy away from this in the report. Mm. Like I think we are talking about a fundamental shift of manufacturing and materials uh, approaches. And so it's not an add-on. It's a fundamental different design philosophy to buildings. A nerve structure, like I just talked about a vascular system, but you could also have a nerve structure inside a building or a car. And you can imagine in the case of a car, for instance, you know, we have this paradigm at the moment that there's an electric car, which is going to be the future, let's say. And essentially a third of it's big blocks of lithium sitting in the bottom of the car. That's, that's pretty dumb, isn't it? Why isn't the whole skin of the car an active material that's harnessing energy from the sun and constantly storing it in that membrane and then delivering it to wherever it needs to go? Why does it all have to be a big block? And the answer is the electric car of today is quite sort of kludgy, you know. <laughs> is that a scientific term? Well, it's sort of disappointing, isn't it? It's, it's just sort of just a sort of... It's uh, it's just an old car with a bit of electric stuff bolted on. But what if you actually incorporated it into the skin of the body? So that's the kind of fundamental rethink we're talking about. I mean, it's fascinating because at the moment, certainly in terms of architecture and buildings, there is a current fashion for retrofitting. You know, the French architects, Lacton and Vessel won the 2021 Pritzker Prize. And their mantra is never demolish, never remove or replace, always add, transform and reuse. Does that philosophy fit with what you're talking about, I wonder? Um, I guess they're talking about stripping out everything except for the structure, perhaps, and then replacing the interior. I suppose I would say, yeah, that actually maybe if the backbone of a building in the future has all of these delivery mechanisms that can harness energy from, let's say, its its outer membrane that's interfacing with the sun or or the wind Mm. or the heat Mm. and exchange it and create either deliver materials there so it can heal itself and also get rid of them and have a waste. You know, if all of that plumbing, let's say, is intrinsic to the initial building, you can imagine that the other bits of it would all change at a much higher rate. And in fact, might even build themselves. Why not? When you say build themselves, you mean grow? Yeah, grow. You know, you already see people playing around with this notion anyway, with sort of robotic, uh, you know, using robots to build materials. You don't need to actually use an external robot to build something. If you have a a delivery mechanism that's an internal vascular system and it's depositing stuff on its surface that then hardens and then the next layer builds up and then the next layer builds up, you can imagine, well, that is, you don't have to imagine it. <laughs> have a look mm. at the trees around you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I'm saying that I think it's perhaps more radical. We're talking about a bit more radical. We're sort of saying, let, let's think of structural systems that right from the beginning, however small they are, have this ability to be active, adaptive and autonomous. And then let's see if once you've given them those properties, let's see how they can build themselves into structures. What structures would they be? I guess they would be constantly evolving and dynamic because that's the opportunity that opens itself up. You don't actually Mm. have to have something that stays the same all the time. That's not its forte, in fact, probably. So I guess what we're saying is try and keep the buildings that we have. But if we're using new ones, then the base of them should be these active materials that can change over time. Or or Mm. you could have a skin, you know, an active skin on the outside of something. And in a passive thing, I mean, a bit like the sort of skeleton idea. So I can imagine that. I guess reading the report, it's autonomous materials, I suspect, are the ones that people are going to be most suspicious of. I'm wondering if they're right to be. I mean, you used an example of tiny robotic modules that could assemble and disassemble into arbitrary shaped objects. You take the chair as an example, and there's talk of smart dust, which contains hints of Philip Pullman. 
Are people right to be fearful or suspicious of them? I don't know if they're right to be, but I think this is the time to have that discussion because I think the wrong time is when they're already built in some lab somewhere (laughs) and that organisation has invested lots of money in them and now wants to sell them everywhere. And I think that's the wrong time to have that discussion. And I can imagine that happening because I guess the other thing we were trying to do with this report is say, these things are now all possible. The science has moved ahead so fast that quite a lot of these things that seem like science fiction are now possible. So where do we want to go as a society? Which of these technologies do we want to say, actually, we're not happy about that and we're going to have some very strict rules about and other ones where we're going to say, yeah, we we want to go down that direction. Mm. I guess we were trying to open up that conversation. It's not for me to tell people what they should be worried about, but I do think an open discussion with the public and listening to the public and co-designing the future with the public is surely the way forward because That hasn't really happened in the 20th century as I see it. The 20th century has been forged by corporations spending lots of money doing amazing things like telephones and satellites and so on. But actually, that's been on their agenda and on the industrial, military industrial complex agendas. And for very good reasons, often to protect particular countries from aggression and, you know, the history of wars in the 20th century is not to be overlooked. But in the 21st century, feels to me like who owns the material research directions and the UK government's just starting this new research organisation called ARIA, which is meant to be doing very avant-garde research, which in which animate materials fits very nicely, I think. Mm. Mm. If they start pouring lots of money into this, I feel like the public, whose tax money it is, should have a say <laughs> in which directions it goes. So yeah, I just think we just need to talk about it all more. So for instance, if we did have a bridge that could detect it's getting damaged and then becomes critical, and so it isn't some chartered engineer who spots the fact that it's a safety risk, but it's the material itself, great, hooray. Okay, now what happens when it goes wrong and it doesn't spot it and someone dies? Who's Who's the fault there? Yeah, Yeah. I think we need to start having these conversations because we're going to see it more and more in, if you think about our, our cities, and our lives, they're more and more underpinned by complex technology on which our lives revolve and are reliant on. And I don't see a way around having more automation of repair and things like that if we want to still have these kind of lives anyway, because it's just not going to be possible economically to have physically people digging up the roads the whole time and putting scaffolding up to dig leaves out of gutters. I think all of that's going to get automated. And the question is then... There'll be more and more of these questions like, then when an automated system is doing this stuff, (laughs) who's at fault if it goes wrong? And then the materials, the active materials involved, how do we control them or make sure that they don't get out of control? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's it's going to make insurance companies a lot of money, I imagine. I mean, we're talking about disruption and there are interesting questions. If your road self-heals, presumably people who mend roads lose their jobs. As a scientist, are these things you have to think about? I think as a society you have to think about, and scientists should be involved in the conversation because they can add certain bits to that conversation. But I think it's the whole of society who needs to be involved or representatives of. Mm. Um, So, for instance, on the jobless thing, I think to me it's inevitable that roads of the future will not be dug up by individuals. And, in fact, the current companies don't want that either, even though it's the sort of cheapest option. It's actually a lot of risks on the motorways, for instance, uh, it's a very high-risk job, and they, they want to have as few people as possible out there in the middle of the night doing stuff. And they'd much rather have a robot out there doing it or the material itself healing itself. Mm. 
but their business plan doesn't really allow for it because, well, A, the technology is not fully there yet, but even if the technology that we're talking about would be developed and more successfully, and we've taken some, I've done some research in this area, we've taken some baby steps towards self-healing roads. The thing is that at the moment, the way the business works is that it's a money-making exercise. You build a road, it falls apart, you get employed to build a new one. <laughs> why, why would they want to stop it's not who repairs it. It's the fact that it does fall apart. That is at mm. the heart of their business model. It needs to fall apart for them to keep going. <laughs> and, and so, of course, it does. That's no surprise to anyone. If you say to someone, I want you to build a road that looks after itself. So once you build it, you, you don't need to build that road again, or at least you won't have to for another 50 years. That's a seismic change in the business models of infrastructure yeah. development. I don't think people are ready for that either. Because then, in a sense, if you're a local authority and that's our taxes paying for it, it's actually much better for us. We're going to spend less money digging up the roads. And it's a massive political issue as well. I mean, the, the biggest local issue for voting is potholes. People hate them and it's a never ending problem. And every time there's a severe winter, it gets worse. And it's just, again, you know, it's just this never ending problem. So we, let's say we get rid of that problem because we're having self healing materials. <laughs> Great. But who wants to build those roads that are self healing? because it puts them out of a job. So they, <laughs> they're all sort of saying they're not interested. But the local authorities, us, us citizens, we should really want them because it means that they'll free up tax money yeah. for other things like healthcare and looking after us when we're 100 and we're playing tennis <laughs> and skiing tennis. <laughs> and we have a little injury. So I think there's a big shift in everything. There'll be a big shift. I mean, people have been saying this for a long time about automation, but I do think it's true. Well, it's huge, isn't it? Because, I mean, what, what you're saying is certainly since 1979 and the rise of Margaret Thatcher and neoliberalism is that we have relied on the markets to make many of our, well, increasing numbers of our decisions for us. And quite possibly, COVID might change that, but quite possibly it might not. But what this report and what you're suggesting, I mean, we're talking about whole new systems, a whole new model of living, fundamentally. I think it's a whole new way of spending taxpayers' money, let's say, yeah, in the case of infrastructure. And, you know, we talked to Network Rail. They, they were part of the report uh, consultation. They have a nightmare network. I mean, that network is 150 to 200 years old. The number of bridges, tunnels, the track itself is constantly falling apart. It's a network problem. If, if one of those goes down, it, you know, it causes huge congestion and loss and a lot of time and everyone's inconvenienced. So they would love to move towards a system where the system looks after itself. Mm. Um, but it requires a different kind of financing because the upfront costs are always higher for these sort of systems. And that's the thing that always gets chipped away at when you're doing a new line or a new bridge or a new tunnel. And that's what I was saying at the beginning, like people are not choosing self-healing systems that, that are currently on the market because you know it adds 10, 20% to the budget. And that's the first thing to get cut. <laughs> and the other thing to say is that then once you have a self-healing system, you can basically change the model perhaps to whoever's running it gets um, revenue per mile travelled, right? So if it's a road, what you're paying for as a local authority is the number of cars driving down the number of roads. And if you can keep that up high, you get your money. And if it goes down, mm -hmm. i.e. you fail to make the system heal itself, then you lose. So mile per travelled seems to me a much better way to fund a more efficient way and a more robust way of having infrastructure, especially as we go towards global warming and there's going mm. to be more and more flood events, more and more big storms. There's going to be these big shocks to the system. It seems to me obvious that when you have a harsher environment, what you want is exactly what the body does. It's constantly repairing itself. You don't want to have to suddenly go, we're closing this bit of the motorway now for a year because we're suddenly doing a whole load of repairs. 
actually, you want it to just be constantly repairing itself. And presumably, these new materials require new craft skills. Yeah, I think it is a different view of... I mean, craft is a funny word, isn't it? I mean, what do we mean by craft? You know, we mean by someone's very specific skills to make uh, a bespoke object or material. And I think that's true, that actually those skills, you know, that that activity is more digital now than it used to be. I mean, if you think about gardening, this is how I like to put it with these new materials. People get a bit like freaked out, like, oh my God, what if a city is like all dynamic and active and autonomous and I'm just going to be totally freaked out. And you go, well, are you freaked out in a forest? And they say, no. And I said, well, that that's active, <laughs> autonomous and and uh, you know that that's looking after itself. You're not freaked out at all. It's actually a real release. But gardeners' jobs do exist. And what's a gardener's job? Actually, it's to harness something that's already growing in a certain way. It grows nicely or needs more light or less light or needs more, you know, different type of soil. I see the kind of craft jobs of the future in a city to be more about nurturing and pruning, let's say, a system that is already dynamic itself. So I'm interested the report is kind of, I mean, we've kind of alluded to this a bit already, I guess, but is very keenly aware of the importance of PR. I mean, it mentions that the the grey goo of nanotechnology that Prince Charles was railing against 17 years ago, you recognise there's a job to be done to bring people on board. And I guess I, the question is then, how do you bring people on board? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think the, the way to do it is conversations like this, <laughs> frankly, I think um, we need to flag up to people this stuff is happening in labs all around the world. And they need to get involved. And the people, when I say they, I mean, both as members of the public, but as members of the profession. So architects need to get involved, designers need to get involved. I do feel it's sad how segregated science and engineering has got from, especially material science. The people who do material science don't often hang out with architects and designers and, and fashion. You know, they don't, they don't. And I think they don't, they don't co-design stuff. Often we do in the Institute of Making, but it's a rare example. And I think it's a bit of self-promotion, really. We're, we're, <laughs> we're doing it right. Uh, the way to do it is to co-design with those professions because those professions, they have people at their heart. And I'm not saying science doesn't, but I'm saying that the sort of skill sets in those professions is very much to flag up potential human issues often in a design and understand how it's going to mesh with society and people and culture in a way that science isn't, you know, that isn't, it, what it does very well and isn't one of the things it's forte. And I think as we go towards these sci-fi futures, we need to make those steps together. So that my big PR thing is is the public, but but also the professions. Mm. How did you get into all this stuff in the first place, Mark? I mean, your book, Stuff Matters, has an extraordinary opening that recounts the time you're attacked with a razor blade on the underground. And this opened your eyes to the power of materials. Yeah, I mean, I think you write your own story in a way, don't you? But some things early on in your life really switch you on to a particular, they open your eyes. And I suppose being stabbed <laughs> opened my veins as well as my eyes. <laughs> yes. uh, getting into material science is one thing, which is that it is a marvellous thing, isn't it? Like we have all these materials and they are so extraordinary and wonderful and you could never get to the end of them. And that's always an appealing thing to someone who's afraid of boredom as I am. But then I think later I started realising that you only understand materials from one particular angle you understand the sort of structural microscopic aspects of them you understand strength and fatigue and, and electrical and magnetic properties there's this whole other huge side that other professions are much better educated in and, and have much deeper knowledge in as i met those people artists designers architects cooks i've done a lot of research into edible materials 
my kind of respect for them just grew and grew. And I think that if you're curious about the world, how could you not also be curious about why certain people approach a material by having to make it before they understand it? And other people approach a material by having to work out what atoms are in it and how they bond together. And I think they're both great, but I like both. I like both approaches. Mm. As we said in the intro, you studied metallurgy at Oxford and you got a PhD studying turbine jet engine alloys. Was it always a plan to stay in education? Uh, I think like lots of young people at the time, I didn't have a plan. I just wanted to do things that were interesting. (laughs) I got into jet engine alloys because they are really at the kind of pinnacle of sophistication in terms of metal design, alloy design. They're really amazing. Yeah, well, they're called super alloys, the ones that I study, super alloys. I mean, and they are super. I mean, they're sort of... (laughs) (laughs) so i was really impressed and i cut my teeth in terms of technical understanding deep deep technical understanding and modeling of the chemical structure and the the mechanical structure and then i realized that jet engines were basically optimized what i was doing was very well interesting and and certainly it stretched me intellectually but i i also realized that the world probably didn't need a better jet engine (laughs) And so then I started looking around for what it did need from a material scientist. And the more I looked around, the more I thought, well, actually, the bits of the world that probably do need material science more are the bits that interface with humans more, so like buildings and Mm. healthcare. And so then I got sucked into those. So understanding healthcare angle, I suddenly had to learn about cells and how they build materials. And that's also fascinating. And because I didn't do a biological O-level or A-level, I had to really get up to speed really fast to do research in that area. And I, I kind of collaborated with lots of people. And that's how I stumbled upon animal materials because I suddenly realized, right. hold on a minute, living systems do this already, but why don't buildings do this? Why don't clothes do this? I thought, well, you know, I can take my material science knowledge, I can wed it with my biological knowledge, and I can start contributing to this new field, animal materials. Fascinating. I mean, your father was a material scientist as well, I think, wasn't he? I yes. Mean, was, was his career very different to yours, I wonder? He was a real metallurgist, I'd say, a, a true metallurgist. So did his PhD on bronze alloys. And that was sort of bang in the middle of the sort of 20th century mm. where metals were on the ascendancy and they were the answer to pretty much every engineering problem. Pretty much every engineering problem was we need a better metal. And, um, <laughs> and he, he was doing all that stuff. It was really impressive. When I came along on the scene, it was changing semiconductors and superconductors and you know, the electrical and magnetic properties were opening up. Smartphones, you know, came along, touchscreens, you know, all these incredible material science innovations. The world was exploding in different ways in terms of new materials. So it was, it was yeah, I was lucky to have uh, that kind of upbringing. So in some ways, your kind of careers reflect the, the different epochs in which we, um, we've lived, I guess. Yeah, I suppose so. You follow your nose a bit, don't you, with research? And I feel very lucky that I've been able to sort of um, spend five or 10 years in a particular area of research and then decide, okay, I think I've done as much as I can do in this. I'm going to completely pivot and go and have a look at this over here. That's such a privilege because Mm. often people's careers get very siloed. They get better and better at one thing and that's what they get employed to do. And that hasn't happened with me. Mm. Um, And I, I feel lucky. Although I'm also working in animal materials, I'm also working in plastic waste. And we haven't talked about how the report talks about the fact that one of the things about animal materials that I think can really contribute beneficially to the world is that it can reduce waste. Because if you're not throwing something away every time it gets broken because it needs repairing, 
but it's repairing itself. You, you elongate the lifespan of, of, of objects. And if you can do that, you reduce CO2 emissions and you reduce waste quite a lot. And um, I, I, I feel, you know, that actually that's, a, that's another really important aspect of those materials. Well, there is a strong kind of undercurrent of sustainability running through the report, isn't there? Yeah, I think that has to be because that surely in the 21st century, one of the biggest things we're going to have to try and mm. tackle and successfully, if we're not going to be in real trouble, is our wasteful, enormously wasteful systems. The idea of collecting materials and turning them into a library, that happened when you were working at King's. How did that come about in the first instance? That was interesting because I sort of just loved materials. I would always be visiting people's labs and they would show me some material that sort of changed colour if you sort of blew it or something. And I'd say, wow, that's so cool. And then I'd go, can I have a bit? And they'd mostly say, yeah, yeah, have a bit. Anyway, so I had this collection of like kind of weird materials in my drawer at work and students would come in and ask me and I'd show them some material. And I I realised immediately that that language of showing them a piece of material and putting it in their hand and saying, look at this, and now let me show you this. And Mm. that is far more powerful than any talk you can give, any kind of book you can give them. And I realised, whoa, hold on a minute, materials are a language in their own right that people understand, humans understand, because they always have, right? That is us. We love materials. We make them. We use them. We surround ourselves with them. So people are incredibly sophisticated in their knowledge of materials, and they know an amazing thing when they see it <laughs> in their hands. So the drawer of materials got bigger and bigger as I realised its power. And then I met Nesta was just being started, this, this uh, national endowment for science, technology, and the arts at the time. And um, I met some people from Nesta, and they were just looking to invest in some people with new ideas. Anyway, I pitched them this idea that I would start this materials library full of incredible materials. <laughs> they went, yeah, great, do it. We'll, we'll do it. So the materials library was born. But without any strings attached, seemingly. They didn't seem to want any papers, or, or it was fascinating, that. That's such a gift. I mean, I just feel so lucky. Like, that kind of funding just does not come around anymore. Like, everyone mm. wants just three-monthly reports, six-monthly reports. Everyone wants to kind of pin you down. And they didn't. They said, we believe in you. We think you've got a great vision. You go for it. And they were right. If if I look back to all the stuff I'm doing now and the Institute making itself, which I think has huge impact, which isn't down to me, it's down to the big team. And, you know, but it all started from that, you know, very unusual investment in me as a person with a different idea. And I think, wow, I think it'd be great (laughs) if there was more kind of, uh, if more young people, I'm not, I I obviously you know, I can I can always spend the money if anyone out there is listening. But um, so can I, by the way. Yeah, exactly. But I think I think young people being invested in at an early age in their careers is far more powerful. I, I always lament the fact that all these big prizes are out there are always for people at the end of their careers. It's like a total waste of time. For it's such a stupid way in society to or on ourselves. You should invest in young people. Give young people a million pounds and see what dividend you'll get rather than giving some admittedly brilliant, let's say, but mostly let's say it's going to be an old bloke, isn't it, these days, mostly. And what are we saying there? I mean, yeah, so I think more of that, please, more investing in young people. <laughs> well, mainly because the old people will be playing tennis till they're 100. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. How did that materials library then morph into what you have now at UCL, the, the Institute of Making? The drawer became a room with loads of cabinets and materials, and people kept coming and kept depositing, kept giving us materials. And we kept making materials. I remember making a building brick that could change colour with temperature and showing it to everyone saying, look, we could have buildings that change colour and they would reflect more heat from the sun, and, but also it'd be just jolly, wouldn't it? And I, I remember the fun of all that. And then at some point we realised 
hold on a minute, we're not taking this seriously enough. This concept's bigger than that. This concept is that materials are a nexus in any research institute and education institute. Like everything, everything in a sense leads you to materials. If you're doing history, material culture is so important. If you're doing geography, anthropology, if you're doing archaeology, they all lead you to materials. You all physics, chemistry, engineering, all of them, the stuff is at the heart of them. So we thought, well, this should be the heart of beating heart. And, and also, but then, of course, you know, how do you get people to actually engage with you? Oh, it's easy, it turns out. You just have enormous materials library. And it's like a shop. People can't resist. And so once we opened that up and we were like, we had this big materials library with fronted on to the centre of UCL. We had moved to UCL by then. You know, we had thousands of students and staff. We still do have thousands of students and staff coming in and interacting with us, doing research projects, um, but also just marvelling. And it changes their lives because they suddenly, there's penny drops. <laughs> when you see a really wonderful materials library, the penny drops, that stuff is just, it's pivotal in society and, and in people's lives. And it underpins so much of us, our culture, our society, people's professions. That, that was a wonderful moment. And I think, yeah, very, very proud to be associated with Institute Making. And what's its future? I mean, does it just continue as it is? Have you got the model as you want it? Will we see evolution? We are going to get even bigger now because UCL have got a new campus in the Stratford Olympic Park and we are mm. going to be much bigger there. And the, the thing I most want us to do is at the moment, talking about young people, at the moment, what I see is people who come to UCL are often very well-educated in order just to get into us. And so if you don't have those opportunities when you're young and you don't end up at UCL, then you don't get to come to the Institute Making and then you don't get to have this huge awakening, let's say, perhaps, and have suddenly have so many options. You could go to architecture, you could go to design, you could go to science, mm. or you could do all of them together. So what I want in the new site, and not just me, but all of us want, is that we have some way that we can help people who are 10, 11, 12, who educationally... You know, they might be being shut out by the system because they're hands-on people, they're smart, they're passionate, but they're not the sort of people who ace exams and, and are able to stuff information to their heads and regurgitate it. I feel that's a real problem with the education system. And that mm. we would love to be able to help those people and get them off the ground so they can contribute and become part of the community. They are a set of people who are often ignored and I think that's really important that we stop doing that as a society. We stop sort of only giving opportunities to people who are sort of privileged. Well, they just aren't material courses in schools anymore, are they? No, and it's very, it's just, there's not much hands-on stuff, which I think mm. is such an important part of education. Learning things, in the old days, the three R's was uh, reading, reckoning, and rorting. Do you know that? Mm. That was the three R's, reckoning, mm. working out things, rorting, making stuff. Reading, of course, is important. Now it's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. It doesn't even make sense, arithmetic. <laughs> and and it's a total, it's been basically hijacked by people who only think you know something if you can write it down. And that's just not true. It just is not true. Making stuff is, in fact, I'd say if you can make something, you really do understand it. <laughs> mm. And I think we would stand by that, the Institute Making. We'd say that, you know, if you don't know how to make it, you don't understand it. Was there a moment where you decided that you needed to get the message of material science out to as wide an audience as possible through the TV, through the books, through the institute. Yeah, I mean, at the moment was when I was building the research group. I had all these lucky opportunities and I knew where I was going. I knew that this area of the intersection between material science and the arts and humanities was the important place to be. 
And then I couldn't get students to come and study with me in part of the research group. I mean, I could get a few, but I didn't. I was all the smart ones. Let's say not all the small ones. That's the wrong thing to say. But there were <laughs> there was a, there was a kind of. <laughs> It was an enormous number of people going to what I thought were the traditional subjects that I thought were not dead end, but I mean, a bit dull, frankly, not the kind of exciting thing that I could offer them. Mm. And why weren't they coming? And I thought the reason they're not coming is they have no idea. And the reason they have no idea is because they get their information about their passions, let's say, from the TV and the radio and books. And I'm not out there doing that stuff. So I thought I made a conscious decision to do it. I said, I'm going to say, yeah, you know, people offer me a chance to do that. So I'll do it. And it turns out if you say yes to TV producers, <laughs> then you just end up doing TV because so many scientists don't say yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. many scientists are so suspicious and worried about it. But I, I knew that I had to, so, so I did that. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so that I, I really enjoyed it, actually. The problem is, of course, you editorially you cede control often. And I think that's really, yeah, you have to navigate that carefully to get the true spirit of what you're trying to say across without trying to be the director because you're not the director and, and you're also not going to get the final editorial say except in my books where I feel like books are great because <laughs> it's still an art form where you really can say I want to do a chapter on plastics that's a screenplay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> although they tried to persuade me out of it so many times I still did it and various anecdotes on paper yes yeah I know it, it was it's a bit mad I mean stuff matters my first book, it is a bit mad. I occasionally pick it up and read a bit of it. And I, I sort of can't believe I wrote it because I feel like <laughs> it's quite audaciously written. I don't know. Like, you know, sometimes you look back on bits of your life and you think, crikey, I, th- I don't know I had the balls to do that, but, I, but you did and, <laughs> and now it's done. So you can't do anything about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, we're coming to the end of the hour. Thank you very much. I think probably ought to return to the report to conclude. And I was intrigued by a quote from it towards the back end where it said, ultimately, replicas of living cells could combine to drive a new evolutionary tree with different life forms from those that have evolved on Earth thus far. I mean, that sounds slightly disturbing. Are you optimistic for our future? Yeah, I mean, I don't see that as disturbing because I think that when you think about what we are, we are that. Anyway, (laughs) that's what happened on this planet. A new life form evolved and self-assembled. And that's marvellous. It's only disturbing if you think that we are somehow the best thing that's ever going to exist in the universe. And I don't think that's true. I think that the universe is dynamic and is constantly changing and morphing. And we will do that too. In fact, that's how we've got where we are today. And that's why we keep creating new materials. And the fact that we create materials that in the end will make themselves, I think... Yeah, that's inevitable. And I don't think we should be afraid of it. I think, you know, I think it'll open up a new chapter that we will relish and it will have its challenges and there will be downsides, but I think it'll also be incredible. Well, Mark, that is an intriguing, fascinating, and I think optimistic place to end. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And to download the Royal Society Animate Materials Report, go to royalsociety.org. To find out more about Mark's work at the Institute of Making, check out instituteofmaking.org.uk. As ever, there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts 
or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. Just so you know, I've introduced a new tier. So now for only £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening, and please stay safe and well.